0: You're listening to Real Birth Stories, the podcast where we hear unique and fascinating birth stories straight from the mother's mouth. Real Birth Stories is brought to you by Butterbean, the online platform for parents and parents to be. If you'd like to find out more, then head to butterbean.uk or follow us on Instagram or Facebook under the name butterbean.uk. She was there and she came out and she was Beautiful, healthy. And then my placenta splattered on the floor. I went to bed, and I was feeling
1: a bit sick, and then I started having some contractions. Because how you're meant to feel, and what you're meant to do, and all those other things, there's such a prevailing narrative out there. And I think it's very difficult to not subscribe to that. I'd learned that, like, you can moo, and I was like, moo, moo.
2: It was a whole scene. And none of the roads had been ploughed, because it was the middle of,
0: like, 4,
2: 5am at this point.
0: But for me, it went pop. It was like wetting myself. It was like I sat there, and then it came out of, completely out of nowhere, it's like a balloon burst inside me.
2: Hello, and welcome to Real Birth Stories with me, Scarlett, your host. And me, co-host, Anne-Marie. Just to clarify, this week's guest, if you haven't already guessed, is Lucy. Lucy, oh, do we have to go there?
0: I'm 35 pending 36, which is very depressing.
2: It's fabulous, she's 35 pending 36, fabulous and fun. She lives in London with her beautiful, lovely partner and their daughter Ivy. What else should we say
0: about you, Lucy There's so much to say. I don't know. I like Kate. I mean, just I used to knit, but don't have time anymore.
2: Should we give your partner a shout out or do we just leave him nameless? He's Steve. Here we go. Steve! Steve! (laughs) All right, Steve. So, Lucy, are you ready to rock and roll?
0: I am ready. I'm going to tell you my story.
2: We would love to hear your story, actually. Okay. So, can you start
0: with the very beginning? Okay. Are you holding on to your knickers? Here we go. So, I found out I was pregnant in May. It was like the 7th of May, 2020. So, the lockdowns had just started. And it was a period of time where you could only leave the house for like an hour, so no surprise I just got pregnant. It <laughs> wasn't much else to do, um, <laughs> and it was quite a surprise because I didn't really have any symptoms. I kind of like had an inkling feeling, but I didn't have any symptoms or anything. And so I went and got tests, and I remember I was on a team's call with some of my team, and he was talking about something that had been happening at work and going on and on about the story and in the back of my head I was like pregnant I might be pregnant I might be pregnant I was trying to hurry him up as much as possible eventually ended the team's call went and took a test and lo and behold I was pregnant so I ran out of the flat because Steve had gone for a run went to find him naturally interestingly though I'd already phoned Anne-Marie and told her so you were the one of the first people to know Anne-Marie you knew before Steve. Thank you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was honored. you honored. So I ran down the road, found him. Apparently, he saw my missed call and he thought, oh, I'll just ring her later. She wants to know what I for dinner. And I knew which route he was running. So I found him and said to him, You're going to be a dad. And his face <laughs> <laughs> went <laughs> slightly white and um, then kind of went straight into organizational mode. Because if anyone knows Steve, he's very bish, bash, bosh. Let's just organize, organize. He's an event manager. And he went straight into. Organizational mode. So we need to organize hospital appointments. Where's baby going to sleep? Like this is in the first 10 minutes of him finding out he's going to be dad. So great. He's obviously all over it. Fantastic. So, yeah, so that was my agency. Can I ask you, can you describe to
1: us the moment when you took the test and you saw the positive line? You're sat there on the toilet looking at a stick full of your wee. What was your reaction?
0: <laughs> what was my reaction? just kind of like disbelief, like you don't actually believe it because you spend your whole 20s and early 30s trying not to get pregnant because you think it's such a huge risk. True. And then actually it happens and you're like, oh, it's actually happened. And it's not that easy to get pregnant. It's not that easy. Mm -hmm. So it was disbelief. And I think I did. I remember taking multiple tests just in case. And I was actually on the phone to another friend shortly afterwards as well, someone else who I told before Steve, poor Steve. And she was quite funny because she said, I think you're definitely up the duff mode. (laughs) And that kind of confirmed it. (laughs) So just disbelief. But yeah. And I think that's the first trimester as well. The first trimester definitely feels like it's not there. Like I'm pregnant now and I've just come out of the first trimester. I'm now in the second trimester from next week. And you wouldn't know. I mean, I've got a sensational appetite for pork, but that's about it.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: And I used to be a vegetarian, so sorry, world.
2: (laughs) It's only temporary. It's only nine months.
0: Yeah.
1: So what happened then? You find out that you're with child and the important person knows, Steve. Yeah. And you. (laughs) What happens next? And
0: me. (laughs) (laughs) It's late. <laughs> what happens next well you have to tell the doctor so I told the doctor and then you kind of just wait because they're very hospital and you wait for your 12-week scan I had an early scan and a harmony test because my mum works in IVF so she was really helpful in getting me an early scan can I ask a question
2: I love the name yeah what is a harmony test
0: it's a blood test That basically tells you everything you might want to know about your child, including the gender at nine weeks, if you want to know.
2: Whoa, no way.
0: Pretty pointless for us because we decided not to find out the gender until she was born. So, But you can find out everything from like Down syndrome to Edwards and all the stuff they do test you for at 20 weeks. But this was just really early. So it's at nine weeks you find out. Wow. And it's a blood test. And then they do an early scan as well. And they can even tell which ovary the egg came from. So I had this test about three weeks ago because with this pregnancy and this baby that I'm pregnant with now came from the right ovary. I swear it was the left, but it's the right. knew? Mm. <laughs> <I hate you. laughs>
2: when they're grown up, we can tell them that they
0: were always right. I just think, yeah, I just think, you know, your ovaries until you have a test. And then, you know, I didn't know my ovaries at all, did I? <laughs> You think it's the left
2: ovary and then one day it's just the right.
0: Lo and behold, exactly, exactly. So yeah, and then I didn't give any of it much thought in terms of pregnancy. I just took it day by day, which I think is great approach. But it wasn't until people kind of said stuff to me like, have you thought about birth prep? Or where's the baby going to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff that actually Steve had been planning from about 30 seconds in, I didn't really considered. Because you think you've got nine months, and that's quite a long time. And it actually is a really long time. But I didn't really think much about it. So someone did mention to me about hypnobirthing, and I'd never heard of it. thought it sounded a bit a whack job but decided to look into it. And because I did do hypnobirthing, I did an online course, but I only did it because everyone else was doing it, which is silly, really. It was really worth it, but I should have definitely been looking into what was probably best for me in my pregnancy. And hypnobirthing was definitely the right thing to do. why wasn't I even looking that to myself? So a bit ill-prepared, I'd say.
2: Well, I love your honesty though, Lucy, because it's like your first one. And I don't know, but I'm sure if there are lots of other women out there reflecting on their first maybe versus their second or their third or their fourth Mm. I'm sure it's the similar thing of you're not really sure you're like okay I'm looking out here what do I do you kind of follow what you're seeing what you're hearing
0: yeah 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 exactly
1: it also seems like there are sort of things come in and out of popularity so something where hypnobirthing is a really popular thing to do at the moment there might have been something else in its place five or ten years ago is that How you see it, is hypnobirthing a fad or is it a genuinely helpful thing to do?
0: Oh, it's so helpful. The name doesn't do it any favours because it sounds so airy-fairy and wishy-washy. And if you know me, I'm very to the point, what is this? That's my attitude with pretty much everything. What is this? What am I getting out of it? How is it going to help me? And the name doesn't do it justice at all because what it is, is it's like complete birth prep. So it's everything you need to know about how the process of labor, how to stay relaxed, how to change your mindset, because we grow up with horror stories about birth and it basically reframes your thoughts around birth. And those horror stories aren't going to go anywhere. We're always going to have horror stories and culture around birth and how awful it is. And so hitting a birthing is always going to just reframe women's thoughts ahead of birth and put them in the driving seat and put them in a really strong position ahead of their own birth. So so no, I don't think it's a fad. and it should have been around a long time ago. The history of birth is horrendous. Not because birth is actually dangerous, but because of just misinformation and poor culture and hitting birthing would have changed a lot of births in the past. So it might evolve into something even better. We'll see. But I think it's here today. So that's good.
1: Amazing. So is it something that you're definitely going to be getting on top of earlier this time around?
0: Yeah. Well I've done it. I've given birth once, but we'll go into what happened because I kind of gave birth, but then I didn't give birth. But of course I did. But in my head, I kind of half gave birth. But I'll go into that in a second in terms of birth story. Now I'm a hypnobirthing teacher. I'm obviously biased. But what we have done is I don't want to be teaching Steve about what he needs to do when I'm in labour. So we signed up to a local hypnobirthing course. So I researched one that I liked I don't go near ones that say breathe your baby out because that is not realistic like it's just nonsense a lot of hip-birthing teachers do tell you just breathe your baby out I mean come on like that's just not a thing so we're going to one which I feel is completely practical completely realistic but also because it's an in-person group you end up being linked up with the mums that are on that course and they're all local and mm. then they arrange like a dinner and like a pub trip and everything which is great because then you're in contact with people so I'm doing that with my own knowledge in the back of my mind around what I need to do because I think I'm set like I know how the whole process works I kind of trust my body and I know what I want to do but it's more kind of making sure Steve knows exactly what he needs to do and he will be up for it because he is obviously militantly prepared for everything Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yes that's my pregnancy really there was a fear that I had preeclampsia which is a condition where it's called preeclampsia because it's the pre- of eclampsia, and eclampsia essentially fits. So, if you're pregnant, you have eclampsia, you can fit, and it can be really, really, really dangerous for mum and baby. But it's really rare that you actually end up fitting. But the pre-eclampsia side of things is what they test you for. I had headaches. I had loads of headaches with IV when I was pregnant. But I think it might have been partly down to the fact that I was living above building work. So they did extra tests. But I think it might have been the builders <laughs> that did that because <laughs> I never had pre-eclampsia. That is what I've heard
1: is a common symptom, though, that the hormones are creating headaches for a lot of women.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. Just rubbish. So some pregnancy symptoms are wicked. Some are amazing. Some are awful. Like the sense of smell. The sense of smell. It's like having a superpower when you can smell everything. It's amazing. But then there's really annoying ones. I imagine that's not ideal sometimes in London streets. No, yeah. I did smell, I smelled dog poo from across the park, but <laughs> I still thought it was pretty cool, though. I was like, this is cool. <laughs> and then one that I didn't really love was that my feet grew and then didn't go back because that was just irritating.
2: Wait, so you have to get like a whole new set of shoes once you've had a baby, is this what we're saying? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah it's just irritating.
2: I did not know that.
0: Interesting. (laughs)
1: Interesting. so weird. It's not common knowledge, (laughs) I think. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now it is. So yeah, that was pregnancy. There you go.
1: Great. So
2: tell us, how did the birth go? How was your birth with Ivy?
0: Oh, it was in equal measure, really, really boring and really epic. (laughs) So (laughs) I wasn't that prepared and I didn't do much in terms of Crap around hospital procedures and interventions. I didn't really know anything. And I just kind of trusted that medical professionals knew exactly what they're doing and kind of I would hand myself over. What I didn't really take into account was the fact that I was the one who grew the baby. I was the one who was going to be pushing it out. So it was me that was actually in charge. And those people were there to assist me. And of course, they're there to help you and the baby be safe. But they were not the ones in charge. It was me. So My mindset didn't do me any favours in terms of just handing myself over because when you reach the end of pregnancy and you're nearing your due date, what tends to happen is that you start being offered sweeps. So a sweep is where you are close to labour starting potentially or you're near your due date and a midwife or a doctor inserts X amount of fingers into your cervix and they basically sweep around your cervix and they disrupt the membranes between the cervix and the amniotic sac effectively or the plug um, the mucus plug and the reason they do that is because it sets off these hormones called prostaglandins and prostaglandin hormones essentially are the hormones that rush in to fix things when you've got like a cut or whatever it is and so that can kick off labor so that's why they say sperm can kick off labor the sex could can, can because sperm has prostaglandins in it so i had three sweeps none of them worked because the other thing they don't tell you about sweeps is that actually unless you're really close to going into labour they don't work at all mm. and really then it's just a kind of procedure you go through which can be a little bit painful mm. that's absolutely pointless
1: it sounds pretty traumatic as a procedure I have to say
0: yeah it's not great and you can refuse them you don't have to accept them at all like with anything with birth you can refuse anything that is offered to you and it should always be offered I don't feel like it was offered to me I had a very very busy midwife she was wonderful but the way she phrased things was okay we're going to do this now instead of what do you want this and because of my kind of handing myself over to the professionals of course I just went yeah of course we'll do that not really knowing what the pros and cons were so I went through an unnecessary procedure i say but that was the least of my worries I think as I had that thing the way pregnant women have this at the end of pregnancy where they're just itching to get on with it and get the baby out and I wish I hadn't thought that because I could have enjoyed a few more days and weeks to myself but I was kind of really keen to get things going I wasn't uncomfortable or anything there wasn't any reason for me to but I just was I think it's a cultural thing around reaching a due date and starting to get anxious about it and wanting things to progress so my three sweeps didn't work Then the next stage was induction. And I was again said, told, right, we're just gonna do we're gonna do an induction. We're gonna book you in for an induction, because the baby has to come out. And I just again went, okay, that's fine. And accepted. So I was booked in at 41 weeks, because I'd just gone overdue. I'm pretty sure my due date was wrong as well, which I think might have been entirely my fault. I think I got confused on the pregnancy calculator of when My period was, (laughs) I think it was a week out. (laughs) So I was booked in for an induction, which happens in hospital. So I had really wanted to spend the first part of labour at home. But the fact I had induction booked meant I was going into hospital. But I managed, because I did ask questions, which was the right thing to do, I managed to find out that you can have an outpatient's induction. So you can be induced in the hospital, then you can go home. And that wasn't on the table. It wasn't offered. I had to find out. Um, so I'm glad I did. Um, so I went into hospital. They get you your own kind of cubicle with a curtain around you. They do the induction. Then they strap the monitors around your bump so they can check the baby's heart rate. So if everything's okay, then they're meant to send you home. Ivy managed to dodge the monitor. So on the paperwork, there was heartbeat going along nicely. And then there was a blip where it looked like a heart rate had dropped, which meant I couldn't go home. So I had to stay in the hospital, which is rubbish. So that induction, this is the really boring bit, though, by the way. I'll try and get through this bit quickly because it gets incredibly boring and dull. That induction, they have to leave you for 12 hours. So I was in hospital. Abby's heart rate dropped. Then I had to sit and wait for 12 hours for the next induction. They did let me go out for a walk. But other than that, there was nothing to do. I thought I was going home as well. So I had nothing with me. I had no entertainment. Oh, no. I had nothing. So I was just kind of sat there waiting. And then they came along the next day to do the second induction. And nothing happened. Because my body wasn't ready to go into labor. It wasn't ready yet. So of course nothing was happening. And then that was another six hours. I think it was. Yeah. So there's another six hours. That was two days by then I'd been in very bored at this point I'd watched basically the whole series of The Thick of It on my phone <laughs> Malcolm <laughs> <laughs> seeing me through Malcolm was definitely seeing me through
2: <laughs> thanks Mel
0: yeah and then it got to that night that I'd had that induction that day that nothing had happened and then they kind of left it until the evening I was watching women come and go I was like Rachel and Friends where she's waiting and every woman comes in to lay ward and then they go off and have their baby and she's still sat there. So they came along for the third induction. And this time they brought this doctor with them who had a white coat on. And she really looked like she meant business, like she'd been brought in to do a job. It's like having a hitman visit you. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, it does sound scary. <laughs> it's terrifying. And she did the final induction and I've always laughed about this and kind of taken it like thought it was quite funny how mad it was because it was so forceful but actually thinking about it, it kind of wasn't okay she did an induction that was so painful Steve had to grab my hands because it was physically like, agonizing because she was so forceful with her hands and she was so forceful that she almost pushed me off the bed completely she pressed me straight up the bed where my head nearly came off the other side. And I think that she might have done it for a reason to get things going because I'd been there for so long. So it was like forcing it. So I, I don't know. Like I've asked my hospital notes, but that's what I, I really remember. It as not being a nice experience. And she left. She took her gloves off and she was like, there you go. If that's what makes me think she had been brought in to like do a job. So she then left, and about half an hour later, my water's broke. What do you think that feels like? I'm interested to know, because it's like you always see it on telly, don't you? Mm. Do you think it actually feels like? I guess, like, the
1: obvious answer would be that you've wet yourself, but it comes from <laughs> a totally different place, right? And it's a much more forceful, like, one big load of liquid. So I don't know if women experience anything like it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what you see on TV, though. Mm. It can be like a trickle. Oh, really? I didn't know that. We had someone on the podcast, remember Leanne, every contraction was like pushing out more water. It was like gushing out more water every contraction. So it could be really different. But for me, it went pop. It was like wetting myself. It was like I sat there and then it came out of completely out of nowhere. It's like a balloon burst inside me and didn't hurt at all. It went pop and then water everywhere. So, water's broken, and then it all kicked off. So that's a really boring bit over with. If anyone listening to this has skipped past that, don't blame you because it was incredibly <laughs> dull. Sing us <laughs> <laughs> for four days. Maybe you want to listen to a podcast about that. <laughs> oh, bless you, Liz.
1: But I guess it's really important to know because actually, when you are preparing for birth, you want to get your stories. You want to get your magazines take a book yeah take a podcast yeah get it all ready all the
0: entertainment exactly
1: being bored is something that people don't really speak about as part of birth very
0: true well a physiological birth so a, a vaginal birth and so not a c-section is actually a really boring thing to watch because it will go on for days and days and days and days and mostly will be in the dark and mostly will be completely private and that is not An entertaining program to watch, which is why on TV we see something completely different. So, yeah, take entertainment. Even think about something you could do at home that would be quite nice, like bake some bread, something that takes ages. Lovely.
1: Lovely jigsaw puzzle.
0: Yes. A bit of coloring in. Oh, you're set.
2: (laughs) Finally catch up on Game of Thrones.
0: (laughs) And you'd be like, just, just,
2: it's
0: (laughs)
1: done. Comparisons to The Red Wedding.
0: <laughs> oh good. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your thing, is it? So anyway, we were talking about the boring bit and we were meant to talk about the exciting bit. So Steve was <laughs> Steve was then made to leave. So this was about midnight. So he was made to leave and he had to go home. And he said it was the strangest thing because his girlfriend's in hospital in Labour and he's down the road having a pizza. <laughs> How bizarre.
1: I know. <laughs> and also like concerning for him because I guess at that point, you don't know how long it's going to take, right? So he's just yeah. on edge waiting for the phone call of it's happening now.
0: Yeah. Well, they were going to call him back when the, the benchmark of hospitals, when you're in active labour, which is when things are actually really kicking off is when you're four centimetres dilated. So they were going to call him if I reached four centimetres. Realistically, they knew first birth, you know, it takes a while to dilate. And she's been in the hospital for days. It's probably not going to be very quick. They were right, actually. So Steve came home, chilled, had a night's sleep. He did smash a plate, probably wanted to make his night more dramatic because it was quite mundane for the poor thing. Anyway, so I was in hospital and actually I was great. Everything was happening. I was in the dark. I was on my own. Doesn't sound ideal. It was the best possible environment because I felt like I had privacy. So all of my endorphins, which is your pain relieving hormones and your oxytocin is flowing. So everything was progressing really, really well and really quickly. And my contractions were coming thick and fast. I was timing them. I was breathing through all of them. I sat in one position on a chair for seven hours and just literally like rocked back and forth like this for seven hours breathing through the contractions because that's what you do in labor it's really repetitive you find a position you're comfortable in, you just do it over and over and over again I did have the call button in my hand and I did use it a couple of times but they came to see me and they said you know you're doing well just crack on it's the night shift so I reached Four centimeters by about 5 a.m. And that was great. And I don't remember it either, which is a classic thing when birth is going well. You don't remember it because endorphins, which is a hormone, removes the memory so that you do it over and over again, which is why someone with a positive birth experience generally can't remember what happened because endorphins block the memory. They remove it so that you can do it over and over again. If you have a traumatic birth, you don't have endorphins, so you remember everything which is why we hear horror stories. So yeah, so it was great. And it doesn't sound ideal, but it actually it was really, really good. And then Steve was allowed back in about 7am. They got me gas and air. And then they put me in a wheelchair, which lovely. And then they wheeled me downstairs with my gas and air. And they said, we found you a birth pool, which is exactly what I wanted. And they took me into this room and it was like, this room was incredible. It was like a brand new birth suite. And there was a big pool full of fairy lights and fairy lights all over the walls and we could plug our phone in and play music. And there was gas and air on tap in the wall and a toilet in there. I was like, oh, this is great. So I jumped in the pool, not jumped, got in, I was heavily pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Slid in gently. <laughs> yeah. So I was in there and it was a really nice environment to be in. But I remember that bit really well because I remember suddenly feeling quite exposed because I'd gone from being in the dark and being on my own to being surrounded by people in quite a bright room. And that is when things started to slow down because my contraction started to slow because I had less oxytocin. Basically every contraction is powered by oxytocin, which is a hormone. And that's what physically dilates your cervix, opens 10 centimeters. So in the first stage of labor, oxytocin is your basically your contractions that's what's pulling your cervix open and if you feel exposed or you feel observed or anything like that it stalls and your cervix stops opening so i was in the pool for ages i was rolling around in a beanbag for a while i was in the zone but not, it wasn't really happening very quickly and it wasn't until about 3 p.m that I was 10 centimeters. So it took from about 7 a.m. until 3 p.m. to get to 10 centimeters. Bear in mind, I was already four or even a lot more than that downstairs when I was on my own. It's quite amazing how it impacts you. So, yeah, that was that section. And then I reached 10 centimeters and you go through a period called transition when you're basically going from the first stage of labor to the second stage of labor, you have a pause called transition. And it's where women, you might see it on programs about birth, if you used to see a real birth, women saying, I can't do it and going home, never having sex again, threatening everybody. And it's actually a natural mammalistic response to birth. So I went through transition. I start telling everyone I can't do it. I want a C-section is when everyone asks for a C-section as well. Give me an epidural, blah, 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 blah. And I was listened to which is fine but actually I should have probably been coached through it because what happens is you dilate to 10 centimetres and then that means the next stage is your baby physically being pushed out so I was so close to doing it on my own and I didn't actually want any intervention but because of transition I asked for it and got it so I was wheeled downstairs put into theatre given an epidural which numbed me from the shoulders all the way down they'd said to me right we're going to do an episiotomy which is a cut to your perineum it's probably about the size of your finger your index finger what's that about two inches something like that it's quite big and they said we're going to use forceps but if that doesn't work we're going straight to a c-section i would have had a lot of intervention in a very short period of time but luckily the forceps worked and out came ivy and Steve thought she was a boy because of the umbilical cord. <laughs> <laughs> Classic error.
2: <laughs> He's like, wow,
0: okay. Yeah, calm down. <laughs> and there she was. And it was funny, I didn't have like that immediate kind of reaction, which is quite, you know, that reaction you think that you have when you have a baby where you get this epiphany kind of come over you and this like warm glowing light of motherhood suddenly finds you I didn't have it at all I just was kind of like not like I wasn't bothered I just had no energy left at all I had nothing left and I kind of was just like done exhausted yeah Mm. yeah so there she was
1: thing that I'm really interested about is this idea of privacy that you raised because that's something that I think from the limited knowledge that we get from watching tv shows and films it's actually I would just assume that you don't have any privacy if you're having a medical birth in a hospital because you kind of assume that random people are going to be coming in checking on you you're going to be in the horrible hospital lighting you're going to be on a ward for some of the time you're not necessarily going to be in a Nice private room for a lot of the time that you're giving birth. So, what are the choices that you have in terms of privacy? Can you request that you are left alone? Can you dictate that part of your birth plan?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you can say, I don't want any medical students coming into the room. I don't want people coming in to basically observe me. That can happen. You can state that no one talks to you which sounds rude, but no one comes and talks to you, which is actually quite an important point, because if you are in labour, you need to be in really deep relaxation and concentrating on your body. If you're having a conversation with someone, you're not focusing on yourself, and that can stall labour. So you can request that, and actually that's where your birth partner comes in, because your birth partner becomes the gatekeeper, if you like. They're the person that medical staff speak to, so if they do need to talk about next stages and if there does need to be an intervention or does need something does need to happen your birth partner is the person that they speak to and then actually then they can your birth partner comes and talks to you so it's not someone you don't know you come out of this deep relaxation there's something looking at a face that you don't know and a voice that you're not familiar with and then you're trying to make a decision which is just you can't be doing both and then when you create your birth environment you can take whatever you create anywhere you give birth. So I often say to people, don't focus on where you want to give birth because it doesn't actually matter. If you give birth in the car, you can create your own birth environment in the car. You can put on the music you want, you can have the lights down low, you can have the smells that you need, the sights that you need, you can bring all of that with you. But obviously, don't we don't want people giving birth in cars, but you know what I mean. Hospital. So most hospital rooms have dimmable lights and Actually, a lot of hospitals are completely okay with hypnobirthing. And if you've got someone coming in who's done hypnobirthing, they will pretty much know what you need and what you what you're going to be expecting in terms of what you want. So you can create the environment wherever you go and it can easily turn into being not private, you being observed And that can easily stall your labor and lead to a lot more intervention that you might not want. Some women want it. Some women want intervention. Some don't. If you don't want it, you can avoid it as much as possible. You might need some, but, you know, you can do your best to avoid it as much as possible. So, yes, there's definitely things you can do, but it's not presented as the options. You have to go and find this stuff out yourself and then really campaign for yourself as well. It's not that easy, but it is possible.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like you had a number of medical interventions that perhaps in a less busy, less stressed staff of the hospital kind of scenario, maybe you would have been coached through or it would have been more patient on behalf of the midwifing team. I don't know if that's fair to say, but how do you take your midwife and the team in the hospital with you on your birthing plan? And because presumably you won't necessarily know those people. They won't know where your line is when it's just a, oh, Lucy just needs a bit of encouragement or, or to be told, come on, don't be impatient. It's going to happen when your body's ready versus she's genuinely at a point now where she needs, for example, the epidural. You know, how do you navigate that? Uh,
0: use an acronym called BRAIN. So your birth partner asks, and you use this in your antenatal appointments as well, so you can use the same thing. Brain stands for you asking what are the benefits, what are the risks? And then you ask yourself, what's my instinct telling me? Then you ask if there's any alternatives and you ask what happens if we just do nothing, which is the really important one. Because sometimes doing nothing is possible and actually no risk or there's very low risk. So my induction is a good example where I could have done nothing. I could have just gone home. And going to labor naturally you know what was the real risk i was way ahead of i had like 10 days before i was at 42 weeks and even going past 42 weeks the risks for me were very low personally so i could have taken that choice but i didn't know to so yeah so that's probably where i went wrong i didn't also have that information presented to me so it's difficult isn't it to know how to navigate things when you you want to trust the people that are caring for you because they do care they've also got processes and protocols they have to stick to and that might not necessarily be in your best interest in terms of your individualized care it's in the interest of the hospital not getting sued if something does go wrong so it's a tricky balance but I think just learning how to campaign for yourself and learning your rights and learning the statistics and actually the risks is really important so you can make informed choices.
2: So Lucy could we talk about breastfeeding slash feeding how was it for you you know what was your story with it so i
0: assumed like i did with everything with birth that it would just come naturally what i didn't realize is that breastfeeding is a skill so i didn't realize that breastfeeding is a skill so i went into it assuming that it would just come naturally and i just could not work out how to do it it's not like bottle feeding you don't just stick your nipple directly into the baby's mouth, and then it's just that they just start suckling and feeding. There's a different technique to it, and I didn't realise that. So I spent quite a lot of time um, doing two things, trying to teach myself, because I knew that skin-to-skin, so having a baby on your chest is really good for breastfeeding. I didn't really know why, but I knew that that was a connection. And the other thing is I kept asking for help. But the problem was... The people I was asking were people who were very, very busy, busy looking after lots and lots and lots of women who'd just given birth. And so I couldn't get the one-on-one support that I needed in hospital. So I left hospital without knowing, really knowing what I was doing and went home and then tried to teach myself at home. And I didn't know anything about lactation in terms of what happens to your body when actually you're producing milk. I had a really unhelpful health visitor who I had called over to help me with breastfeeding specifically with breastfeeding and she just said oh just don't worry about it just fed is best which is fine but I wanted to breastfeed (laughs) so of course fed is best but she's missing the point that actually I was asking for specific help with a particular skill and I have nothing against formula I have nothing against using a bottle but I wanted to breastfeed and she didn't take that into account so Around day five is when your full milk comes in. So the first few days, you just have colostrum, which is very, very small quantities. It's about the perfect size for your baby's stomach. Around day five, your full milk comes in, your mature milk. And if you're not removing milk from your breasts, you become engorged. And I became engorged. And I literally can't tell you how mad it was to wake up in the morning. My breasts had gone up five sizes overnight. <laughs> wow. It was unreal. They were hard, like rock solid, but you couldn't touch them. Like they were in terms of and they were raw. Like it was like someone who'd been beating me in the chest overnight with a baseball bat. My skin looked marbled, I had veins, and then there was like leaking coming out of my nipples. Basically nothing had been removed from my breast because I hadn't been able to breastfeed and my body was like starting to go like warning start retreating the milk it's not being used so I didn't know what to do and I ended up messaging a load of mums that I'd met on the NCT group that I was on and one of them suggested a lactation consultant which I'd never heard of before I'd never heard of a lactation consultant and she recommended one locally and I got in touch with this consultant and said look I've got some problems but I'm engorged the rest of it she was on zoom with me within an hour and she fixed it within 40 minutes it was amazing what a goddess absolute goddess i was able to then feed for 15 months but i so nearly didn't go in the direction i wanted it to and on the surface of it would be fine because of course it's most important that ivy's fed but For me as the one who wanted to breastfeed, if I had not been successful in that, that would have been something I think I would have found quite traumatic because it would have been like my first test. I failed, you know, as a mum. And I know that breastfeeding, there's such a thing as breastfeeding trauma of women who've not been able to breastfeed. And I think I would have been in that category, which is terrifying, you know, just because I couldn't get support. So, yeah, it was tough. I loved breastfeeding, though. It
1: sounds like what's really important that you mentioned there, two things. Number one, that you asked for help. And number two, that you were persistent. Because I think, you know, it only takes for one person to be too busy or to not quite get where you're coming from, for that to completely change your journey. But the fact that you were persistent and you were asking people is clearly what helped you to succeed in feeding in the way that you really wanted to.
0: Yeah, yeah, probably. Probably, but what if you can't get that help? You know, I was lucky enough to be able to find a lactation consultant and book a consultancy, which does cost, it's not cheap. What happens if you can't afford that, or you don't know, to, or you haven't got a support network around you to help you, and you just kind of suffer in silence, really? And it's not the fault of the staff. Well, what would your advice be? I think prepare yourself when you're pregnant. So find out how it works and do a feeding course if you can, just understanding how lactation works so you understand what's happening to your body because it's such a dramatic change in a very short period of time. It happens over a few days that you start producing milk and then you could be engorged and then you could get mastitis. Mastitis is where you need to go and get antibiotics from the GP because you're ill. And that's not what you need when you've just given birth. So I think prepare yourself, understand how your body makes milk, what the process is and what the technique is for breastfeeding. Because if you can crack that in terms of just actually understanding how it's different, then you've got the knowledge to sit at home and do it yourself. Because it's really hard to teach yourself a skill which is actually, it's not intuitive. It's just different to bottle feeding. It's different to what we know. And you mentioned mastitis
1: there. Could you very quickly give us a, an example of just in case people are going through this
0: at the moment, what might that look like? You might not get all of these, but you'll get hot, lumpy patch on your breast. So it could be in like a wedge. Essentially your milk duct is blocked, but it will be red, raw and hot. You might get a temperature, might be sick. And yeah, it's, you get flu-like symptoms. It's like you've got the flu but your breasts become very tender. And the best thing you can possibly do is continue feeding, which sounds really counterintuitive. It's like most, a lot of women stop breastfeeding because of mastitis. Actually, the way to clear mastitis is to keep feeding because baby feeding is the most efficient way to remove the milk. Because what you need to do with mastitis is to keep getting the milk out of your breasts because it clears the blocked ducts. And go to a GP, definitely need to go to a GP. If you've you've got mastitis, definitely get antibiotics. I had it three times. I've got a massive supply of milk. But I think that might be because I pumped and I used two breast pumps on my breasts. And I think that my body thought it was feeding twins. (laughs) (laughs) So I had like so much milk. So, yeah.
2: So it sounds like it's a very common thing and it can happen. It reoccurs. So it's definitely something to really look out for.
0: Yeah, it's really common. Engorgement is the one that's really, really common after birth. Mm. it's really common but not normal not normal at all but a lot of women get it and i know a lot of women who've had it yeah that's the first warning sign is engorgement because that engorgement leads to mastitis and no one needs mastitis okay one of those things you think no why does this exist it's just crap sounds
1: awful it does very painful yeah yeah thanks lucy that's all been Amazingly insightful and I think very helpful to people who are going through this. Can I ask what one piece of advice would you give to another pregnant person who's just on the beginning of this journey?
0: Ooh, I would say prepare while pregnant. Especially if this is your first pregnancy, you probably have the time and space to sit and think and research and learn. Learn as much as you possibly can and yes your natural instincts will come into play when you are a mum but the more you know the easier it will be because some things will not be completely instinctive so learn and prep as much as you possibly can and understand your body and the power of your body and what you are actually capable of because it is quite incredible what you can actually do. Real Birth Stories is brought to you by Butterbean, the online platform for parents and parents-to-be. If you'd like to find out more, then head to butterbean.uk or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under the name butterbean.uk. We are currently looking for inspiring women to be on Series 2 of the podcast. If you'd like to tell your story and help other women ahead of entering into motherhood, then email us at podcast at butterbean.uk. We would love to hear from you and hear your birth story.